Welcome to A Country of Gamblers, an investigative look into gambling in Kenya, focusing on Sport Pesa, the biggest and most visible betting company in Kenya's history. This story is told by Paul Wafula, who has been investigating the gambling industry in Kenya for the last five years. It lifts the corporate veil on the gambling underworld, going behind the billions that flowed through the industry to bring you the whole story. In the previous episode, we told you the story of the mysterious death of Dick Wadika after a stormy boardroom meeting at a Nairobi casino. Wadika, who was the youngest mayor of Nairobi, was the only Kenyan founder of the giant betting company. If you missed this episode, please check out the links in the description box below. Welcome to the second episode of A Country of Gamblers, an investigative look into gambling in Kenya, focusing on Sport Pesa, the biggest and most visible betting company in Kenya. My name is Paul Wafula, a financial investigative journalist. In the previous episode, we established that Spotpesa's roots were formed on treacherous grounds. Jero, a Bulgarian with a penchant for gambling, struck friendship with Nairobi Mayor Dick Wathika. The two had turbulent business dealings. Though they worked together, it is clear that they did not trust each other. Well, at total six foot nine, I think uh, there's a time when we ran sort of cash, and then uh, Gero approached Dick Wadika when he was still a mayor, and uh, he asked Dick Wadika to, to borrow him some money. So Dick Wadika gave two million. Gero sidelined Dick Wadika to run a gambling promotion, which then prompted Dick Wadika to make a call to Uhuru Kenyatta, the then finance minister who shut the operation down. And then, for reasons only known to Dikwathika and Gerasim Nikolov, also known as Jero, they reunited in 2014 to found Sport Pesa. Only for Dikwathika to suddenly pass away a year later after meeting with Jero and Jean Grant, another Bulgarian and a Sport Pesa shareholder. But who are these Bulgarians? Who is this Gerasim Nikolov, alias Jero? And who is this Jean Grant? For you to understand the story, it is important to know the key players. And so, I post this question to Deep Throat, our anonymous source who we spoke to in the previous episode. Our source is a man with extensive experience in the betting industry. This man has worked with Nikolov, government regulators, and several other people who worked for Spopesa. We are concealing his identity for safety purposes. Yeah, well, I know Nikolov, um, and also Jean Grant. Uh, and in fact, this Jean Grant uh, is a second name. <laughs> He's a second name. 
he had another name, not that one. Uh, Nikolov came a little bit earlier. Jean Grant came around uh, that is two, 2006, that's when he came to Kenya. But uh, Nikolov was in Kenya as early as uh, 1995. And he came as an employee from Bulgaria. And when he came, he was unable to speak. He could not speak English. And uh, he had no car. He used to go for English classes and he used to ride a bicycle. There are two Bulgarians in this Port Pesa saga. First, let's focus on Nikolov, as he was the first to arrive and do business in Kenya. I asked Deep Throat, what brought Nikolov to Kenya? He was uh, an employee of uh, a casino owned by Amin Walji, the former assistant minister. And that's, there, that, that's where he was working. And he was working as a pit boss, not even a manager. <clears throat> and then slowly, he, he, he was elevated to that position of a manager. A pit boss is somebody who is assigned to allocate duties for the casino employees. And this was basically done because of his color, not, not that he was experienced. This was done because of his color. And this is a, a norm in most of the casinos. Though Nikolov secured his casino job because of white privilege and not expertise, our source tells me that Nikolov was a nice guy. Like most of us, he had dreams and ambitions. He was a nice person, a person with dreams, somebody who was ambitious. And he didn't, he didn't look dangerous, he was just a cool person, looking for opportunities. The three of them did not have enough capital to set it up. So they called home, raising capital through a Bulgarian betting company. In the year 2000, he was employed at um, Lyco Casino, that's Grand Regions, uh, as, a, as, a, as a floor manager. And him, together with another Bulgarian by the name Kirill Cavaletto, and a Malaysian by the name uh, Danson, uh, came up with an idea that uh, they can start a, a lottery. But all of them did not have money. Uh, so they approached some Bulgarians who were running lottery in Bulgaria, and these Bulgarians accepted. So in the year, 2000 and the year 2002, towards the end, these Bulgarians came to Kenya. They sat down and accepted to finance the lottery. The Bulgarian financials arrived in Kenya in style showcasing their power and wealth. And they came in their private jet. So this is just a group of mafia from, from Bulgaria. I cannot tell how much they, they pumped in because at that time I had not been employed, but I remember I was called to talk to them. And uh, I talked to them. Uh, we shared some ideas. But uh, basically they sponsored everything from the building, hiring the building, and bringing in machines. So this, they accepted, and then they also accepted to ship in some kiosks, the blue kiosks which are seen in Nairobi town. If you are an Nairobian of a certain age, you might remember several blue booths in town with the total 649 logo. In fact, there are still some booths in the city today. One stands at the corner 
returning to Macmillan Library as you head to Jamia Mosque. It is central, strategic, and visible. Those boats were shipped in courtesy of the Bulgarian Mafia. The introduction of Proto 649 in the Kenyan market threatened the survival of charity sweepstakes. Uh, Toto 649 was running a lottery, and this became a big threat to Kenya charity sweepstakes. The running a lottery which was new of picking numbers, and they were running a draw every week. Deep Throat is talking about Kenya charity sweepstakes, which was founded in 1966 by an act of parliament. Before Toto 649, it was still under government control. But in 2019, Tenelot, a UK firm, acquired a controlling stake of charity sweepstake. So, the only betting or gambling entity under government control ceded its control to a foreign firm. We will explore what this means later in the podcast. What gave Total 649 a competitive edge was the fact that it had weekly draws and a substantial jackpot. I started with a jackpot of 2 million, which I think it was not even there, not like now that you have to show what the money is. So it started with a jackpot of 2 million. And then this jackpot slowly increased. Uh, by the time Gero was leaving the company, it was around 36 million. For the non-gamblers, a jackpot is a grand prize of a lottery. I asked Deep Throat if any Kenyan ever won the 36 million. And the jackpot was never won. And this is because of, uh, according to the participation, we had not attained the number which is supposed to, to release the jackpot to go. We are making profit. We are making profit. Um, every, week we, every week we are making at least 1.5 to 2 million. Jerasim Nikolov was the CEO of Toto 649. This is the time that Deep Throat is describing. It was a peak of Toto 649. There was misappropriation of uh, funds. Uh, when the Bulgarians came, they wanted for Gero to account for the money which has been sent. He could not account for that money. So he was asked to leave. So he left. The Bulgarian financiers appointed a Kenyan of Asian origin as caretaker CEO. A couple of months later, the caretaker died in what police described as a robbery gone wrong. This Asian was uh, stopped on uh, Jogo Road just at the junction of Buruburu, with, with uh, guys who had uh, AK-47, three of them. They stopped him and sprayed his car with bullets, and he died instantly. And then they opened the boot and took a bag which was there and disappeared. So according to the police, the police said that uh, it was a low-body case and they were investigating. Uh, but uh, when we went to ask what that bag was having, uh, the wife said that was his lunch which was packed in that bag. And remember this guy, this guy who used to play around uh, 10 million in the casinos every day, daily. So we thought that maybe he was killed because he was carrying money, but he was not carrying money by the time he was killed. 
And then there was also rumor that Gero was involved in this. But the police said it was a robbery case and they were investigating. Uh, up to now, nothing has ever come out of that. Uh, this is because he had misappropriated funds and uh, they thought that Gero did not want to be asked where the money is. And uh, they thought that the Indian could be a threat to him because he was Kenyan. So this Indian would have known where the money went? Yeah, or he could have even taken action to, on him, that is, if there was uh, that misappropriation case. As we are learning, Gerasim Nikolov, alias Jero, does not stay down when he falls. Shortly after being ousted from Toto 649, Jero was in touch with yet another Bulgarian, a billionaire who was interested in setting up a casino in Kenya. In fact, his contact with the said billionaire was during his tenure at Toto 649. Just before he left Toto 649, I think uh, he was in communication with another Bulgarian from his home country. And this guy wanted to open a casino. So he asked Gero how much was needed. Gero told him around 50 million. So this guy gave him 50 million to start up a casino. And this is the Finnish casino in West Hallingham. Uh, this is the same casino where Dick Wathika had his meeting on his last day on earth. Because of Jero's reputation, his new Bulgarian investor wanted to ensure that his investment was well looked after and that Jero wouldn't pull his dirty tricks on him. So he took some measures. Think of it as some sort of insurance policy. This guy asked him to put CCTV cameras for him to be seen what action is taking place in that casino. Uh, this happened for maybe a week, and then, no, a, a month, and then the cameras went dead. And uh, this is simply because Gero did not buy this casino, did not buy the equipment, he hired, instead of getting a new license, buying equipment, he hired from, uh, a Korean by the name Tiger Lee. It is a mystery as to why people in the betting industry trusted Jero. Even if he was charming, surely his track record paints him as a man who lacks integrity. While still running Phoenix Casino, Jero was in course to establish Sportpesa, the biggest sports betting platform in East and Central Africa. In our first episode, we established that at the onset, Sportpesa did not have enough money. Deep Throat, our source, told us that Dick Wathika and Jero approached a Kenyan who had sold his company to the French to finance the outfit. I don't remember the name of this guy, but this is an, a Kenyan who had sold his company to a French company. He sold it, I think, for around $3 billion, so he had money. So he gave money uh, to Gero and Dikwa Dika. These were the owners of Sportspesa. We have since established that the man he was talking about is none other than Paul Ndungu, who we also introduced in the first episode. Mr. Ndungu told us that because of his friendship with Dikwa Thika, he reluctantly agreed to invest in Sportpesa. Here is a recap of that. So I invested some time 
uh, about six or seven months after the company had started operation, sometime in November, December 20, 2014. Pondungu was among the first people to invest in Sportpesa. I asked him how much it cost him and what he got in return. Yeah, it was quite a lot, not less than $1 million. Yeah. Of course, I paid some premium. And I think uh, for my 17% acquisition, I put more money in the company than what they had actually put. And I bought it gradually. I started with 5%. Then every time they would learn out of cash and say, oh, Paul, can you also lend us some cash and also give us, buy a few more shares? So I, I acquired the 17% in three or four tranches. Paul Nungo's money enabled Sportpesa to upscale. They moved from Samir House to Chancery House. Most of the money that he poured in the startup company was used to advertise and popularize Sportpesa among Kenyan youth. Part of the reason why Paul was pumping in so much money was because of his relationship with Dick Wathika. As I said, Dick Wathika was a very close friend of mine and I also wanted to, to help him instead of... Uh, him losing his capital, then I knew if I put more money, then the company is going to be able to, to maybe grow. Paul Ndungu ended up becoming chairman of Sportpesa. We talked about how a ton of events ended up putting him in charge. Actually, when I invested in the company, I was actually not even interested so much to be a director. But I became a director because, of course, they were valuing my input as an accountant. Um, I was able to guide the business uh, and give it direction, even as a director. And then sometime in um, December, uh, was it December 19th, December 2015, the then chairman Dixon Wazeka uh, abruptly, we say abruptly, he just uh, died. By the time Sportpesa was launched, Kenya had taken a frog leap in technology. The government, as a regulator, had enabled easy setup and operation of M-Pesa. This meant that Kenyans had the bank on their phones. M-Pesa made it easy for people to gamble. In the past, one needed to go to a lottery booth or kiosk and buy a scratch card or place a bet. By the time Sportpesa launched, all one needed was a phone. It need not be a smartphone. Any phone will do, which meant any Kenyan with a phone will place a bet for as low as 49 Kenyan shillings. The role M-Pesa played in the success of Sportpesa is not lost on Paul Ndungu. Uh, we had uh, M-Pesa. Yeah, you know, uh, last time we, the Kenya was the first country to have M-Pesa. So it was a new, unique business case because uh, with SMS, or yeah, you could bet through M-Pesa. In 2016, Sportpesa was at its peak. Money was flowing and the company was making profits. Early investors like Paul Ndungu were reaping the rewards. Everything looked good and rosy. In the next episode, we'll explore the rise 
and rise of Spopesa. We will introduce new investors like Ronald Karauri and talk about Spopesa's influence on local and international sports. You now know how the Bulgarian Mafia came into a country of gamblers. From here, we take you inside the Sport Pesa boardroom at Chancery House to give you the front row seat into the story of the meteoric rise of Kenya's biggest betting company. A country of gamblers is told by me, Paul Wafula. It is written by Vinchon Chogu and James Matt. Recording engineers on this project are Amina Dima, Robert Gishira, and Doris Onyango. Sharon Ongayo is our production assistant. Final mix and sound design was done by Dan Aseda at Semabox. Our executive producers are Paul Wafula, James Matt, and Vincho Chopu. This is an Alfulela production.